1: Hello, I'm Tom
0: Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the, the James Bond A-Z to z podcast.
1: Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films.
0: By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond to z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, E.ON or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbond8az.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond to az podcast. In this episode, we've got another special, and it's a pretty big special actually, because it's probably one of the most watched Bond films for people... Of recent years really because it's it's casino royale how did uh, how did you guys find
2: the um the research for this one it's there's lots there's lots on it loads of stuff it's the first sort of modern thing we've had to look at in terms of a special and it, it, there's an abundance of information
1: everything yeah. is so well documented it may not be covered in as many books in terms of um you know, some of the great books that we always look to, the encyclopedias yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of stuff online, yeah, there's so much information out there. Everyone who's been involved yeah. with this film has talked about it. And rightly so. I mean, it's it's probably considered the best Bond film of the modern era.
0: I, I found that with a lot of Bond stuff that we look at historically, you tend to find it... We have our sources that we go to to find about Bond stuff. And they're generally the same kind of sources that, that document Bond. But... When it comes to something like this, it's just a popular film, isn't it? It's got the same sort of level of research and coverage of, of the film that you'd find for, like, Marvel films. It's almost difficult to choose a, a something to read about it because there's so much... Yeah.
1: yeah, but it's a great story behind this film, and uh, obviously that story started with, um, well, I guess the first book many years ago, but, but in the, the, the story with Casino Royale, the 67 version, which we covered in depth in the previous episode. So... Um, uh, yeah, I just think there's a great story to go with this and coupled with it being Daniel Craig's first Bond film, there's a lot to talk about.
0: Yeah, I agree. So shall we start?
1: Yes, I guess uh, let's begin with where it fits in the the canon, I guess. So I guess it's it's important to, to note that this is came out in 2006 and it's Daniel Craig's first film and it's the first Bond film for four years after Die Another Day, a film we'll be covering it in depth soon. And the thing that really struck me when I looked into it like in the context of what was happening in the world of cinema was when they announced Casino Royale was a lot of the talk was around, around how it was going to be the Batman Begins of James Bond cuz 2005 was the when when they released Batman Begins and that film you know the release of that film is still having an impact today right Yeah the way they stripped that character back took him back to basics grounded him in reality and you could just see that that's what they really wanted to do
0: well it was the birth of the real origin story wasn't it a proper origin story as opposed to just some comic book style one
1: yeah it couldn't have come a better time as well obviously with die another day previously everything had gone just you know ott and although that film had been super successful it hadn't been well received by critics so the, the the rights came coming back to to Eon couldn't have happened really at a better time for them. And yeah,
0: it was it was perfect timing, wasn't it? It was um, if if they'd have got the rights back at any point before this this change of the style and and change of the the bond, it could have had it could have been awful. It, if, imagine if you'd thrown it in in the Roger Moore era or something like that, it would have been a waste of of the story. But yeah, it was it was definitely the perfect time for this story to to suddenly come
2: back. And then, of course, if it hadn't have, if they hadn't have acquired it, they'd be stuck after of the day, thinking, "Well, where do we go from here?"
1: Yes, yes, it would have been a so it would have been a very different Bond world. But the period that the film comes out in was very, very franchise heavy. I mean, obviously, we're living in a very franchise heavy world now. But when you look at like the films that were popular around that time, like I said, Batman Begins, Revenge of the Sith had come out the year before. Disney was doing the uh, Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe films. And then in 2006 itself, when the film came out, other films include Mission Impossible 3, as I've discussed before, one of my favourite Mission Impossible films, Pirates of the Caribbean 2, uh, Rocky Balboa, and then and then looking at sort of other blockbusters, like actually was a really great time for sort of gritty blockbusters, Departed, Prestige, Apocalypto, Children of Men. This was a great era for films, I think. And Casino mm, Royale, yeah. it could have come out and sunk, right? If it hadn't been great, but luckily it yeah. was.
2: Oh, it, it needed to be. If you look at yeah, you, the films you just said there, if it hadn't been anything other than great, it would have really struggled.
1: So should we start with how the rights came to E.ON?
2: Yes, let's do that.
1: So uh, as we discussed with the 1967 Casino Royale, that film was produced by a guy called Charlie Feldman, and he had the rights to Casino Royale. See previous episode for the details on that. As also discussed, that film nearly killed him. And in fact, he died a year after the film came out. And so when he died, the rights to the film, to Casino Royale, to making it for the cinema, were split 50-50 between United Artists and Columbia Pictures. Columbia Pictures, as a studio, was acquired by Sony Pictures in 1989. And that was really Sony's sort of big move into the into the movie world. In 1997 the Sony Pictures announced that it had plans to um, make its own rogue James Bond film franchise to compete with the one that was currently um, being produced by MGM with Pierce Brosnan in it. And they signed up Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, the, the the team, the filmmakers behind Independence Day and Godzilla, and they were going to have Liam Neeson starring. And obviously they had the rights to Casino Royale, and they also had the rights to Thunderball as well, because that was... Um, that was something that was in the mix as well. But from 97 to 99, Kevin uh, McClory, the guy behind the rights dispute for Thunderball, uh, he claimed ownership of that after Ian Fleming wrote the book based on a script that he'd written with Ian Fleming. He found himself in court. He was basically battling again to make another version of Thunderball, which he had already done with Never Say Never Again. But in 1999, Sony finally really reached a settlement agreement with MGM for the rights for Thunderbolt. So the settlement included payouts for both from both studios. So for laying aside the chance to make James Bond films, Sony paid5 million dollars of damage to MGM. Uh, sorry, so in, in addition to, to laying aside the rights to make a, a James Bond film, they, they paid $5 million in damages to MGM. And then in its part, MGM paid Sony $10 million um, for the rights to Casino Royale um, and to sort of claim all those rights back. So basically, Sony came out of it with $5 million and nothing else really.
0: Doesn't sound like a lot at all, does it?
1: No. Um but there was obviously a lot at stake there. And then in 2004, everything came full circle because Sony Pictures acquired MGM. Um, and then that brought the Bond franchise to, to Sony and to Columbia Pictures where they'd always coveted it. And it, that's where it stayed until the
2: release of Spectre, which was the last Sony Pictures released James Bond film. So with the, the rights acquired in March 2004, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who had written the previous Bond films, started writing a screenplay with Pierce Brosnan in mind, because he was still the incumbent. And they wanted to bring back that flavour of Ian Fleming's early Bond novels. So they actually, they created a script, um, and then it, it sat there for a year. And then when production got into full swing, just skipping slightly ahead, um, Martin Campbell, who was the director, he he brought in Paul Haggis to rewrite the script with a with an idea of sort of changing any bits that he wasn't happy with. So Paul Haggis rewrote the... The climax of the film is, is where he did a lot of work. He said that the draft was there. It was very faithful to the book. There was a confession. So in the original draft, the character confessed and killed herself. He's talking about Vesper there. She then sent Bond to chase after the villains. Bond chased the villains into the house. I don't know why, but I thought Vespa had to be into in the sinking house and Bond has to want to kill her and then try and save her. So Paul Haggis is giving He's coming from a different angle of of what uh, Purvis and Wade are doing. They've pretty pretty much just used the book as their inspiration, and then he's added uh, flesh to the bones of the story. Uh, Haggis said that he did want to do for Bond what Batman Begins had done for Batman. So you know the people making this are well aware. You know they're using that as a reference point. Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson also aware that Dying of the Day had gone too far, there's too much CGI and they just wanted to strip it back and so, like we said, they've acquired these rights. It's come at a perfect time where they want to do so. They've got that uh, story that they can use now. So Robert Wade says about the, the script, Casino Royale is the 21st film and therefore Bond comes of age. The events in the film show how immature... Uh, he is and he turns it he becomes the bond we recognize the man you meet at the beginning of the film is an orphan and he's been in the services and he's learnt to fend for himself he protects himself emotionally he doesn't allow women into his life the events in casino royale show him that life has a lot more to offer so there's a lot packed into this script and i'm sure you'll you'll see that if you watch it we've watched it recently and it's you know it's an emotional journey for for bond really is a Something that defines him and gives you an understanding of what, you know, the actions he does. If you go back and watch old Bonds, you then go, oh, OK, this is why he acts a certain way. Neil Purvis said, we really wanted the script to keep the spirit of the book. There's no point in doing it if you don't have the torture scene or if you don't have the line, the bitch is dead. So those are two key moments in the actual book, which are also two really important scenes and, um, in, in the film. Paul Haggis said, "It's about how Bond becomes an assassin. Now becomes a misogynist. I think I've probably ruined the Bond series for everyone forever. But on the contrary, you know, he's he's given us a, a a fresh understanding of what Bond is and a new so, direction. Absolutely, a new direction that that was really needed. And the the script, as you, as we'll we'll go through the podcast today, you'll see how important getting this script right is into getting everyone on board. So the next task that they had was." finding a director.
0: Which wasn't actually that difficult of a task. Because they already knew the director because it was Martin Campbell, as you as you mentioned um just now, who'd obviously already directed Goldeneye and to to much appraise after that film was made. And it he's a director that Wilson and Broccoli spoke to about subsequent films in the in the Brosnan era. They tried to get him back for Tomorrow Never Dies and and the other films in that series. So when it came to Casino Royale, he said, yeah, I want to do it. And the reason was that was because he and we talked about this before when we went through in the previous podcast uh, talking about Martin Campbell, that he was excited about taking on the new character, the, taking on the new the new style. And he didn't want to continue the Brosnan era because it, you know, it's just there's nothing new really there. You you stick with the same character. So as soon as Casino Royale came along, suddenly he was interested again and um, they they pulled him in to do it. And it was, interestingly, the appointment of of Martin Campbell as director um, was announced long before the actual new James Bond was announced. So they didn't even know that Craig was doing it at the time. Certainly the public didn't know that um, Craig was going to be doing it. So, yeah, that was a uh, that came out in a press release in 2005 when it was announced. And Broccoli and Wilson said, uh, we're thrilled that Martin has accepted our offer to direct Casino Royale. He is an extremely talented director and we believe he will take our films in a new and exciting direction. Which is good because it's not the kind of thing you'd say from somebody who'd already done a film. You'd say that for somebody who, who comes in new. So they had a lot of faith in him that he could once again do what he did with GoldenEye and, and, and change the direction, which is a pretty big gamble if you ask me. If, if, if it had come out you know, the same style as GoldenEye, he'd be like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. But, no, he did a he did a damn, damn fine job. We well, you know what they say. Um,
1: Always gamble on Campbell. <laughs> no, they, they don't. I just I um, made that up.
0: I thought that was the suit. Um And, yeah, so he, as you say, he worked with uh, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. There was some speculation at the time that, that Quentin Tarantino was had some sort of negotiations going on with, with, with the Fleming family. Um, and we've talked about this before as well, where... Tarantino had it, wanted to set it in the 1960s, and he wanted Pierce Brosnan to be play Bond and all this kind of stuff. So there, there may have been some secondary discussions going on, but certainly from what I've read, Martin Campbell was the man for the job from from the start, really. And there's not a lot of other directors, or if any other directors are associated with that, those discussions that went on. But obviously, even though Martin Campbell came back, we lost a very important person in the Bond. Story.
1: Yeah, well, we I mean, we discussed this at length in the Piers Brosnan episode, so I don't want to go over it in too much detail here, but basically, yeah, uh, Brosnan, by the sounds of it, was looking to up his deal after having made a ton of money for the company with Die Another Day. Those negotiations fell apart, and I guess it was just serendipitous for E.ON that they had Casino Royale, and it felt like the right time to reboot it. I don't completely buy that they... St- Got a new actor because it was Casino Royale. I think they're just two things; they're just coincidental. So, Brosnan was told over the phone that his time time was over. I think he really wanted to make another one. I think he would have made a good effort with it, but um, the, the time was the time was over for Brosnan. And um, when you think about it, he was yeah. in he was in the job for not that long, really. What seven eight years? Um, seven years, yeah. And we we talk quite a bit in the podcast
0: about how the the kind of broccoli business is it's like a family and people you work with people together and that's why the films are so good but I think when when I read about the Brosnan phone call it reminds me it's just a business they're only in it to make money and continue the Bond name and it doesn't matter who Bond is it doesn't matter who the directors are it's about Bond the the progression of that series and the continuation of it you can't go oh we're gonna do another Brosnan film even though it might not be really where we want to go. They they make decisions based on the long-term stuff. Much to the sadness of Brendan
1: um,
0: with the loss of Brosnan, but as we've said before, he may be back
1: in the future. Who knows? Yeah, but if you want to learn more about um, Piers Brosnan's departure from Bond, then yeah, go look back and listen to the Piers Brosnan episode, uh, part two.
2: You might as well listen to part one as well while you're there. So that leaves, uh, leaves them with the task of finding a new Bond, which is always an exciting thing they've usually got someone in mind and as early as february 2005 daniel Craig's name had been sort of going around the media as a possible contender to replace pierce brosnan um so much so they actually it was reported widely in april 2005 that he'd been signed by eon but the the bbc made contact with eon and it was proved not to be so but, finally, October 14th, 2005, Eon did name Daniel Craig as the sixth actor to play 007. Uh, they signed him with a three-year con- film contract, and Casino Royale was to begin filming the following January, so January 2006. And they were aiming for a release date of, of the November that year. So, according to uh, the director, Martin Campbell, he said that Henry Cavill was the only other actor in serious contention for the role but he was 22 years old and was considered too young i don't even know why you'd see somebody who's 22 <laughs> year old
0: for the for, especially for that story it's, it just seems very odd but yeah
2: yeah i know but michael g wilson said that they looked at over 200 actors of playing the role mm. so not, all around not, the world yeah so not necessarily auditioning all 200 of those but there was like a long list of uh who who they were were considering. So you've got names like Dominic West, Gerald Butler, Goran Visnjic, Sam Worthington, all considered. Huge, huge. Chapman's in there as well. Mm. Basically, if you're if you're a male actor, it seems like you're on that list.
0: A part of me feels like they those names are associated with it, and they maybe even screen test them purely just to get that press coverage. Because sometimes yeah. you hear they hear the names and you're like, "There's no way they could have they could even imagine that that would be a good idea." You knew that would never get made, but yeah, yeah they,
2: they do it anyway. It certainly gets the hype up, I and mean, I'm sure we'll be oh, yeah. we'll be facing that again in the next couple of years. So Daniel Craig initially rejected the part. He he'd seen the where the series had gone, and um, just saw that it was a standard formula, and that he didn't think he could add anything to it. However, he then read the finished script, and that's what got him on board. So very important legwork that that script is doing. Barbara uh, Broccoli said Daniel Craig was an obvious choice for Casino Royale because he is an actor who defines his generation he's charismatic versatile sexy and this this part is a big challenge but he's proven to us that he's an incredible Bond uh, she was very much team Craig right from the from the outset
0: oh yes well it all it all kicked off really on um, as you I think you mentioned the date already Brendan Friday the 14th October 2005 the day the world find out fa- finally found out who the new Bond was and I think certainly for me this is probably it's the only Bond I've really cared about in at such a high level of when this happened. I think when when we were all about the same age, so I seem to remember when Brosnan was became Bond. I didn't really care. I didn't. It wasn't like a thing for me. I, I, I wasn't excited about the new Bond. I Certainly didn't remember Dalton very much at that age. But I think that this was there was so much around it, and there's so much talk, and I think it it was the first time there was so much media coverage because by that time, you kind of had the starts of social media and stuff as well. So it was just such a a big deal and everyone kind of getting involved. In the, in the days of Brosnan, it was just the press. That's all you had, but you didn't, you didn't have the internet, really. So yeah, Friday 14th of October, 2005. Uh, he arrives, uh, Daniel Craig, by speedboat, courtesy of the Royal Navy. Um, he joins... Uh, you, you, you can remember that image of him going across the Thames. He's wearing his... Uh, it's Brioni isn't it Butler you know everything about Brioni I believe it's a Brioni suit he's wearing um, and he's coming across the Thames it's slightly ruined by the fact he's got a big life jacket on which was a problem at the time because they didn't want him to have to wear a life jacket but because uh, it ruins the ambiance of Bond travelling across on a, on a speedboat so he moves, He comes across to Martin Campbell and Mark G Wilson and Barbara Broccoli uh, and the press conference is held on board the HMS President which I, I'm not sure I'm assuming that's a temporary one and then they have a press conference, so they, there's a lot of talk on there obviously, it's a very this is where a lot of the kind of this is the first time anyone's seen this new bond and he's blonde, he's different from what I've seen, the press conference was quite a tricky one really it was it was a lot of tough questions to Craig. It wasn't excitement and. You know, saying, oh, looking forward to it. It was more really trying to hammer him and get headlines from him. But he said of it um, I, various quotes I'd like to thank the Royal Marines for bringing me in like that and scaring the shit out of me. <laughs> nice, funny joke there from Craig as is, is he, is he does his first lines as Bond. And they're asking questions like, when was the decision made? He says, I was in Baltimore and I got the phone call on a Monday. I had a few martinis. Very good, Craig. <laughs> Asked if he was intimidated about following on from the actors, he said, "I've got a big pair of shoes to step in from Piers. I've just got to step up to the plate and deal with it." And then, yeah, there's a lot of talk on the, in that press conference as well from Martin Campbell, who talks a bit about the, the style of the film, where it will be a grittier movie. There's going to be less gadgets and technology, and it's more about the characters and 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 how that that they um, how that comes together. He talks about the key elements. Uh, attributed to the success of the series and they're all still going to be in there so you can kind of get this feeling and I I seem to remember this at the time where they were talked a lot about getting back to the the core of Bond and that was quite an exciting thing at the time I remember because it sounded like they were changing it and he said it's not a reboot more of an exploration of untapped areas it's not a question of redefining it's a matter of going somewhere they haven't been before Uh, And that was Daniel Craig talking about that. And then Mark J. Wilson said um, at the press conference, we want to do it the right way. It's going to take an approach we haven't taken before. So all very exciting stuff going on. Um, And Campbell talks a little bit more about how in the film, it looks at, you might find out the ingredients of a martini or how he gets hold of the Aston Martin. So setting this up, very nice, very exciting. But the other side of that whole press conference and the media attention around it was the bad side of it. And that's the controversy around the decision of making Craig bond. And it was massive at the time that this kind of opposition that came around for, for Craig. And as I mentioned earlier with the kind of social media thing and the fact that people could build websites very easily by that point, that people were setting up websites just against bond. One, one the the most prolific of them being Daniel Craig is not bond.com, which still exists. So have a look at that. And it's still, they're still posting stuff. It's just a Bond site now that hates Craig. I looked so at they it still earlier. don't like Daniel Craig. They're still yeah. posting about it. But it's such a strange site in, in how they've done it. And there's, mm. there was... Um, um, and a message on the website that's still on there which is, it says the studio and producers know they are unhappy they are unhappy fans and also know millions of dollars were missed out on because of their mistaken choice of Daniel Craig the boycott will continue as long as Daniel Craig is employed as 007 <laughs> the boycott <laughs> Very strange I mean I'm glad that they, the internet didn't really exist back when Brosnan came around because it, it just ruins it for me I'm a bit worried it's going to happen happen again now social media is even more prevalent but that wasn't all. That you had that kind of petition element of it. But also the kind of tabloid papers, they were really bad as well. They the mirror ran a front page story after the press release that had the headline, The Name's Bland, James Bland. And you can read that still on if you go on Wikipedia for Casino Royale and read go in the, the, the foot links, you can see that article and it's just horrible. It's just having a go at him for anything. Like, like, stuff that's not even relevant. And they basically framed the whole of the press conference as like he was just not saying anything, he wouldn't answer questions. Incredible era for, for
1: the media. I, I, but, I have um, to say, I think that that press conference, that launch, it would just it feels really misjudged. That whole bo- arriving mm. on boats and doing it on boats, it's like it's
0: unnecessary, it's like, wasn't it?
1: it's totally unnecessary. I think they put him in a tricky position it sort of backfired. Yeah. He didn't look the part because he had like long hair as well because he was filming something else and it was dyed blonde yeah. as well. So I think there was a lot of like, a lot of mist. Missed... He
2: just got off of um, a red eye flight as well. Yeah. He, he, yes. Uh, he, yeah. he was completely jet lagged. But it
0: was just... Yeah, really bad, it was really badly good. planned. If you're making a decision like that and promoting something like that, just plan it really well and make it, mm. be in control of it. Do it in a beautiful place, really bonds nice hotel. Make him have, you know, Get him ready for it get, prep him all this kind of stuff but no it just it was it was not a nice it's not a nice
1: thing to watch but isn't there a suggestion that it might have been his former agents that were behind the hate campaign oh i I've, I've not i've not seen well, I, that i read that before he, he he landed bond or as part of landing bond he changed agents i can't remember which agency to to which and there is mm. a suggestion that perhaps his former agency uh set this thing up this whole backlash against him as sort of anti-spin, but I don't, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, well,
0: even if even if they didn't, this that's the first time that the public could have a view on it, really, because of social media and forums and the fact you could set up these websites. So, I imagine the next bond is going to have the similar thing. Oh, definitely. Unless he's, unless he's him or her, unless they are completely, you know. What everyone wants. If they're slightly different, they're going to have the same sort of thing. Although, yeah, as you're saying, do the press launch a little bit better, <laughs> <laughs> plan it a bit better, and you might be in a better state. So, yeah, that's uh, the, the 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 press
1: launch of it. But who do we what? Who's we got the new film? What's it looking like? Yeah. So uh, obviously there, there wasn't a press conference for the other cast members, but the other new cast members in there uh, the, to join the film. Uh, Eva Green for joined as Vesper Lind, Obviously, it's a really important role in the in the book and in the film. Um, other actors who were considered uh, include Olivia Wilde, Rachel McAdams, and also Tandy Newton. All would have been great choices, I think. With being the studio being Sony, there was pressure on Eon to cast someone a bit more well known, and names like Angelina Jolie and Charlize Theron were included. Uh, other people included uh, or looked at were Audrey tattoo and Cecile de France and Eva Green says she, she had re- reservations about playing another sexy girl in a bikini but she changed her mind after reading the script we'll cover mm-hmm. Vespa Lind in much more detail in the l episode um well, imagine if she turned that
0: down without reading the script and then yeah Saw that and after it was released. I have to oh.
1: say, she is perfect casting for this film. I think she's absolutely oh, she's phenomenal brilliant. in this. Yeah. She's just spot on. She,
0: she's perfect for it. Yeah, yeah, she's
1: one of the few Bond, uh, female Bond girl like Bond girls, who, who actually can act and gets a, a decent part to play. Um, yeah. Also joining the cast, Jeffrey Wright as Felix Leiter. Felix Leiter obviously hasn't been in the Bond films since the Dalton era because he got eaten in Licence to Kill. But this is the first canon Felix Leiter who isn't white. Obviously, they had the black Felix Leiter in Never Say Never Again. Uh, He's the seventh uh, Felix Leiter, Jeffrey Wright. Then you've got Giancarlo Giannini as René Mathis, the French, um, Bond's French counterpart. Uh, He's great. Uh, He's really famous in France for, sorry, in Italy. He's an Italian actor, but he's really famous in Italy for being the voice of many um, dubbing characters. So he's the voice of Al Pacino. Um, And this is my favourite. He voiced Carl Fredrickson in the Pixar film Up. So he's the cantankerous grandma in that. Quite diverse range. Yeah, we'll cover him in in M for Mathis. Um, Other Bond girl, Katerina Marino as uh, Solange Dimitrios, um, who meets a sticky end in the film. Villiers, who is... You sound excited about Villiers. Well, he's like the equivalent of <laughs> oh, Tanner in this film. Um, he's yeah. played by Tobias Menzies, who obviously will later find fame in Game of Thrones, The Crown, etc. He doesn't have much to do in this. I'm surprised they didn't bring him back or I'm surprised they didn't make him Tanner's. But um, So he's named, this is quite interesting, he's named James Villiers. Um, he's named after the actor James Villiers, who played Tanner in For Your Eyes Only.
0: That's very interesting. And
1: also, it has another Bond connection because the Amherst Villiers is the name of the supercharger that Bond has fitted to his car in um, Casino Royale. The Amherst Villiers supercharger. So, there you go. It's not, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit
0: too in depth for me.
1: <laughs> but, I mean, there are others. And obviously, they've got villains as well, who, uh, Brendan, I believe you've got details on.
2: Yeah, we've got Mads Mickelson as the chief, who is also perfectly cast. You know, he's fantastic absolutely yeah. amazing but uh, Ulrich uh, Mattes was also offered the role of of Chiffre, but declined it due to it he was in a theatre production in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf uh, he's a German actor but Martin Campbell said Debbie McWilliams, our casting director is always looking for great faces and she found Mads Mikkelsen to play Le Chiffre. he is absolutely perfect for the role Le Chiffre means cipher you don't know what he is the man is like a ghost, but he's a brilliant card player, and essentially Bond has to go up against him. Uh, obviously, he'll get his own section as we move further down the alphabet. But um, just to say, he's he's very much um, a, a counter like the opposite of of Bond, and he plays him so well that like he's so unnerving. Something uh, uh, very sinister about him, and that's much credit to to Mads Mikkelsen. But there's also a
1: vulnerability. I think that's what Mad Mickelson does really well. There's, he, he's very, he's very, um, very human in that uh, yeah. he has his faults and his insecurities, and those really come across.
0: Well, that's, that's what makes him so scary, and, and yeah, because he's backed into a corner, is he? He's like a, you know,
2: yeah. you know, he'll stop at nothing. Animal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you've got Ivana. I'm going to struggle with some pronunciations here. So, apologise to anyone. I got uh, you Ivan- always get you always get <laughs> the tricky names, I don't know, you? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Ivana Milosevic uh, as Valenka, and that's Leshie's girlfriend. You have got Simon Abkarian as Alex Demetrius, who is an associate of Leshie based in the Bahamas. Yeah. So you recall that he he gets bumped off in the uh, exhibition. I think Bond just gets a bit his of car an from angry
0: henchman, isn't he? He's not really that's- that. Noticeable,
2: no, but he's yeah, he acquires the car. Yeah, Claudio Santamaria as Carlos, um, and he's the guy that is trying to steal the plane at the airport. Oh, he's good, he's very good. Yeah, yeah, he's also the voice of Christian Bale in the Italian version of Batman Begins, (laughs) so there's another connection Mm. to Batman Begins. Sebastian Foucan as Moloka, is he the bald bloke? He's the um, he's the free running guy. Yeah, at the beginning oh, the he's, bottom, good. he's the bomb maker. Yeah. So he is actually the developer of parkour. So that's why yeah. he was given this role. So yeah, he's he's fantastic. Jesper Christiansen as Mr. White who is uh, yeah. a la- liaison for an unnamed criminal organization as of yeah. this film. Uh, and he goes on to reappear uh, in Quantum of Solace and Spectre. And mm. then we believe we've got some returning cast. Although not many.
0: Not many. <laughs> this is this is one of the easiest jobs I've ever had on the, the podcast. So I I mean you're gonna have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I spent a while trying to find returning cast and there's there's really not any. Apart from, of course, Judy Dench, which is probably the most important bit of returning cast because that's a surprise that was a very surprising decision to make, to bring back Judy Dench when you you're basically overhauling the whole film. But it's a decision that, that just worked. And we talked about this on previous podcasts where you can't change everything. you have to have some constants because if you change everything, it's no longer the same film. So I think M is in there as this sort of grounding character that just makes you realize you're still in the same world and and and, and you've got that same kind of you know hierarchy and storyline behind it. Um, so yeah she's I mean she's she's really good in it she, and and her, and her the way that she works with Craig. It it changes from the Brosnan days, doesn't it? Her character changes slightly, but it's still, still the core's still there. But the way she she works with Craig is is slightly different than than Brosnan. Apart from M, there's. No returning characters apart from Michael G. Wilson, who is in there as the chief Uh, of police. He's not a returning character. He just plays random people in all of them. But um, he's the only other person I could find.
1: Are there any others I've missed? Well, you've got um, Sai Chin, who is the Bond girl who was in You Only Live Twice. And then she plays Uh, poker with Bond. And I believe there is another one who plays poker with Bond. In the Bahamas, but I can't, I can't for the life of me think who it is. But Saichin, she's at the table with, um, yes, with Lashief at uh, some point. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's it's basically a franchise reboot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I um, Mass I eyeball.
2: actually read in a few places that it, uh, Judy Dench is playing a, a different version of M. Seems yeah, um, sounds about right. It, there's no confirmation from the writers, but it would it would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean,
0: well, yeah. it does in that. But then when you get into the later Bond films, she she kind of. I think it reverts a bit more towards the kind of Brosnan-style mm. relationship she has with Bond. She's a lot stricter here. She's a lot more arm's length, but I suppose that's the whole point of the, this character arc, isn't it? He's fresh, new, blunt, tool, and then he, you know, develops with alongside M. So maybe yeah. that was that was part of what they were trying to show, and Judy Dench was the woman to do it.
2: Mm.
1: So um, along with Martin Campbell directing, the other sort of crew. Uh, Key crew members are Music by David Arnold. Uh, he is back making his fourth fourth Bond film. Um, yeah, I yeah think. fourth. Yep. Cinematography is by Phil Mayhew, who, uh, who did Golden with Martin Campbell also. Uh, he actually makes a cameo appearance in the film in M's office as a treasury official, so that's quite a nice little bit of uh, information. Stuart Baird is the film editor. We did him in the letter B, the addendum. Uh, casting, as we discussed, is by Debbie McWilliams. Production design is by Peter Lamont who has been working on the Bond films for a long time by this point and this is actually his final Bond film and he made 40 sets for this film and then costume design is by Lindy Hemming and she says some interesting things about how she wanted to make Bond look less like an old-fashioned public school spy and more like a man who has been fighting in a real war. Um, And he uh, obviously off the back of that, he wears he's much more physical and wears more sort of fashionable street type clothes. He is much more casual in this film until we get to the casino. So I guess at this point, we're ready to go into production.
2: Yeah, so we head into production and this film was mostly shot. Barandov Studios in Prague so we spoke about before and we will continue to speak most Bond films are shot at Pinewood Studios but this one this one wasn't, they decided to go across to Prague um, many p- productions have been made at Barandov Studios, uh, interestingly including Mission Impossible and The Bourne Identity, so um, for a film that is taking many cues from, from those two films it's just quite ser- serendipitous that they're made at the same studio. There must
0: be some reason in like that they're, they're set up for that sort of film and that sort of
2: It'll be ta- style. It'll be tax breaks. It will yeah, absolutely it, yeah. be tax breaks. It is. Um, there was a, a, a big problem with uh, in 2006 with in this country. Uh, that's why they didn't. That's why they went abroad. Um, yeah, it was mm-hmm. to do with the, the tax.
1: I think they're filming Falcon and the Winter Soldier at, uh, in Prague. I think that's where they the same studio probably.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's huge. It's one of the biggest in Europe. So it's absolutely massive. So although most of the movie was actually shot in Prague, there's only the opening sequence that's actually set there. So the black and white part uh, at the offices is Danube Danube House in Prague. So it also doubles as various places across Miami uh, and Italy, which I believe you're going to talk about. The National Museum lobby... It stands in for a hotel in Venice, and um, it's quite interesting that if you listen to the uh, commentary on the Casino Royale. They talk about they wanted these grand places in Venice, but because of the size of Venice and the way it's built, you haven't got space, so they had to look elsewhere. So, yeah, if you, if you towards the end of the film where they're they're in Venice and they're in the hotel room, none of that is actually in Venice because you wouldn't get hotel rooms that size. The Body World exhibition in Miami, uh, the exteriors for that, and the Ministry of Transport building in the city centre is used. The Prague International Airport doubles as Miami Airport, and the library inside the Strahov Monastery is used as the government hub. So, um, yeah, I was surprised if, because it really does look like the House of Commons or something. They've done they've really done well. It, it's very very yeah. good choice Peter Lamont said we built about 50 sets on Casino Royale, including M's Penthouse the interior of the Salon Privé at the Casino Royale, the interior of the Barge where Bond is tortured and the interior of Le Chiffre's yacht most of the sets were done in the Czech Republic at Barandov Film Studios we also recreated the famous Body World exhibit at the Science Centre where Demetrius is killed for that particular set we've got the full cooperation of the creator of the exhibition Gunther von Hagen so he's actually in it but you only see his hat so so yeah that's uh, prague doing a lot of the, a lot of the work there and magic doing of the cinema film. amazing absolutely yeah
0: yeah well the um opening sequence to you you already mentioned that it was filmed in prague the opening sequence to cinemarella you know, is quite an interesting one from a Stylistic point of view, because as you will be aware, it all takes place in black and white, which is a very interesting move for for the film, and it's also got quite a, a dark kind of gritty style to it. Which I think the reason they did that was to really set the scene very quickly. You instantly understand the films that the, the what the film is going for straight away. If you have done a a more kind of you know standard style. Trailer, um, opening sequence that you've got for something like a Brosnan film it would probably be confusing for the for the film so this was the opportunity they had to really set the tone for Bond and I think they what they did was just push it even further so they didn't take any risks they went make it as dark as clear like as serious as you can in this and really hammer the point home and I imagine when people went to watch that film Bond fans who watched loads of films before they sat down and they went what is going on here this is I don't understand what's going is it all going to be in black and white yeah. what is he bond I don't understand what's going on in this in this scene and yeah it it moves on to we'll we talk about the actual title sequence later but it's not until the actual the titles come about that bond's really even mentioned as bond it's it's very much the style is is saying that this guy he he's starting anew he's 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 going around he's killing somebody you don't really understand what his role is in the film. So, yeah, I think that opening sequence is really a exciting new way to introduce Bond, which we've never really seen before. Goldeneye did an, it's a pretty cool opening sequence for Brosnan, but it's still a Bond sequence. This really did change the tone, and um, it carries on through to the titles, which we'll talk about in a bit.
1: Well, right, yeah. when you compare it to the opening t- sequences for Dalton and, and Brosnan, they really mm-hmm. were high-octane. you got Dalton yeah. jumping out of a plane... Is it? that's right, isn't it, parachuting into Malta, and then you've got Brosnan jumping off the thing. This is just Daniel yeah. Craig, uh, blunt instrument, killing yeah. two people. He's got that great line about, what is it, oh, the second one is, uh, and then he kills him, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, It's just great. I just love that opening sequence. It's just such a, sets out the stall for the film in a brilliant yeah, way.
0: Yeah, and, and if you think about it, you couldn't have done it other way because every Bond film starts, you know who Bond is, you know what he's doing, He's in some amazing scene, and you know he's going to win that scene. Whereas the whole point of the whole Casino Royale, Daniel Craig story arc is that he's not Bond yet, so you can't start him off as Bond. And I imagine that process for just coming up with how they did that must have gone on for ages. How do you introduce a new Bond who isn't even Bond yet? It could have done. It could have done anyway, but I think what I think it was a very effective way to do it because it's not too detailed. There's not. They're not explaining it. You just work it out you just go well this guy's not Bond yet he's just a he's just a guy having a really tough fight with another guy
1: in a toilet in a just, toilet yeah, yeah it's, it's like not, the antithesis yeah. of what you'd expect from Bond and uh, and you know yeah. and then later aped by Mission Impossible with that Henry Cavill scene right like yeah it's just it's become really a really influ- influential scene I think
2: yeah, yeah it was no, actually it's, 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 that scene was actually shot in black and white as well whereas most most films will convert it um, yeah. They actually wanted to shoot it in black and white and it, that's what gives it that nice uh, effect. Um, yeah, it's,
0: it's really nicely shot. There's a lot of close-ups in it, which you wouldn't normally expect from a film like this. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's just really, it just really sets the tone, which I, I think is important, as, as well as a lot of other stylistic features to this film. But obviously this is first time we see him as Bond.
1: And I think I read somewhere as well in the the, the office scene, I think some of it was like influenced. Martin Campbell talks about how it was influenced by the Ipcrest files and how it was like laid out and how sparse it was. Um, But really interesting. So talking about the magic of cinema, I guess the other the flip side to this film, they filmed a lot in Prague. They also filmed a lot in the Bahamas. Um, And this decision was made because they needed to shoot somewhere that would have good weather in in, in the early part of the year. Because like you say, they were filming in January. They looked at Spain, they looked at Biarritz, they looked at Croatia. They actually looked at Madagascar because the opening of the film after the the title sequence is set in Madagascar. But they just found it was going to be unbelievably complicated. Uh, And that was when Peter Lamont, who has years of history with Bond, he suggested the Bahamas. I mean, probably because it's a great place to film (laughs) for being there, but um, also because he knew that it has so much to offer and the area he suggested was new providence nassau it's good because it's close to america and obviously they can get everything in that they need bahamians speak english they're very familiar with film units they've got great hotels great restaurants for the cast and crew and really crucially it's got it's really good for underwater scenes because the water in the bahamas apparently is some of the clearest in the world so other bond films that have shot in the bahamas include thunderball and the frame and the vulcan that they've you know, the, the, they cover at the bottom of the ocean, in Thunderball. That's still there. You can go to it on a on a mm-hmm. underwater mm-hmm. tour. You can go to it and see it. It's not doesn't look like the Vulcan anymore. It's all rotted. But um, they also did the burial scene in You Only Live Twice in Bahamas. They did the Spy Who Loved Me, the the but the base and the underwater car that was done in the Bahamas. For your eyes only, the underwater ruins is is done there. Never Say Never Again filmed in the Bahamas and The World Is Not Enough also filmed uh, in the same area. So they just knew this place. They knew that they could get everything they wanted. They must have some good deals with the uh, hotels. Exactly, exactly. And actually, if you watch the DVD extras, there's a guy, I I didn't put his name down, but he basically represents hotels and he was a fixer who basically sorted the whole thing out for Barbara and and Michael. And you watch him on the DVD. He's on the DVD quite a lot. (laughs) So they must have done quite a good deal to get him on there. But yeah, the opening scene um, at the construction site, not filmed in Madagascar, but at Coral Harbour and the the southeast of the Bahamian main island, uh, which is called New Providence. And the area actually belongs to the Royal Bahamas Defence Force base. Um, And actually, the Royal Bahamas Defence Force is based in a building that was the hotel in Thunderball. So it's all linked Mm. together. So again, yeah, watch the DVD extras. It really goes into details in the Bahamas. Um, and they'd actually used this base um, as a base for The Spy Who Loved Me. And when they filmed the tanker sequence, they actually filmed it from the hotel, the the unfinished hotel that they use in Casino Royale. So it's all, it's all connected.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So obviously to turn that uh, location into a building site, they actually had to ship in cranes from the UK because all the cranes in the Bahamas had been sent to America to help with the cleanup after Hurricane Katrina. So it was a bit of a logistical nightmare. Um, The snake pit scene in that opening sequence, that was filmed just metres away in an abandoned pool um, as part of this um, unfinished complex. And the embassy itself is a place called John Watling's Distillery in downtown Nassau. Um, So Bond actually, in the film, actually goes to Bahamas for real. He goes to New Providence um, itself. um, And they go to... um, this is where he meets Demetrius at the one and only Ocean Club on Paradise Island. Um, and then he meets uh, Solange at a place called Albany House, which I believe is co-owned by Tiger Woods. Um, mm. And this is where Bond comes out of the ocean in his, in his little speedos. And obviously this is where the DB5 comes in. And if you want to know more about the Aston Martin DB5, we talked about the car used in this film in the Aston Martin episode previous. So I'd go back to that one. But yeah, so I guess the most important scene in the Bahamas is is that is that free running
2: scene at the start of the film. Yeah, which um, is quite iconic. That came about. That's the writers saw a documentary, a Channel Four documentary called Jump London, in 2003. I Vaguely remember watching it. It was it was uh, about these guys, you know, running across the top of London, and it looked quite good at the time. It was something people had never seen before. So they, they'd seen that and kept that in the back of their minds and obviously were just about to write a new script, so they incorporated it. And Neil Purvis said that, we wanted to establish the new Bond is gadget-free, raw, slightly crazy, very physical and incredibly brave. We're also aware that there had never been a foot chase in a Bond movie be- movie before. Which, Definitely not Roger Moore one. No, exactly. He, he refused to run. He refused to, yeah. to walk everywhere. <laughs> um so what what better way of of doing the first one uh, to have it high octane so i mean it's, it it took 6 weeks to shoot it's incredibly you know well choreographed and you know mere millimeters of you know error either way and it would be disaster so they they create where where bond drives the uh, the digger into the building and he smashes through uh concrete plinth the stunt team built a model and um they worked out different ways in which they could get this digger to smash through it and where it could take a chunk out without ruining the ruining the integrity of the actual pillar underneath again this the the extras on the on the blu-ray are it, it's incredible how everything all comes together and um you see the the stunt double is so close to the where the actual the digger crashes into the to the wall um and then so it culminates they get to the top of those cranes and they're 100 feet above the ground and that was all done for real but they they, all they had was a harness so none of it's cgi they're actually up there on the crane and the stunt coordinator gary powell said you're up there high in the air the wind is whistling through the girders it's very intimidating to be up that high and so that the leap where they they jump from one crane to the other was achieved in one shot well you wouldn't want to take two yeah as soon as you've done it that's it see i'm done and and they did the the jump is done completely of their own like they've got no they've got a harness on obviously that's to stop anything but but they're doing the jump there's Mm. there's no nothing helping them assisting them to do that and then they digitally erased the the shot. And there's only two times they used CGI in the whole film. And that was one of them is to erase the wire and the uh, the platform that they landed on. And Daniel Craig was also up there as well. And he said, I'm not going to rush up there again in the near future, but it definitely put some demons to bed. So again, this is all part of the Daniel Craig wanting wanting to do as many stunts as, as possible. Yeah. So fair play for him to go up there because he could easily have just went, nah, don't fancy that cuz even watching it you'd get a sense of dread it's so high yeah. it's incredible yeah it's an absolutely
0: fantastic scene it's it's um I, I can't think of anything i know bond often pushes the boundaries of stunts and stuff but there's nothing like that really that really encapsulates the the bond e- uh, the craig era doesn't it of what they were trying to do with some of those scenes mm-hmm. um and and as we say with these with this start of this film it's all setting the scene that's first Opening sequence, this sequence—it's just setting. You sat down, just going, "Wow, what is going on here? This is this is new. It's not just a continuation of Brosnan's Bond. It's really exciting. And if you, if you ever wanted a, a a complete opposite of dying of the day's invisible car and um, surfing across a t- to tsunami, this is it, isn't it? This is real. This is, and it's not like an amazing, beautiful set. It's raw it's a building site but it's phenomenal phenomenal piece of work yeah so then we move on to and this isn't quite as exciting as the free running scene brendan but it's actually pretty important to the film considering it's actually the name of the film and that's where we go to the casino which is in the fictional montenegro casino royale um but it wasn't it was actually filmed in prague again as as you mentioned earlier it's a spa resort. It's called, uh, let's see if I can get this right, the Old Kaiserbad Spa, Marion Skolenska. It opened in 1895 and closed in 1994. So at the time of filming, it wasn't actually operational. It was, it was still being renovated. So it was much easier to, to actually to actually use it as a set piece. And it, it looks fantastic. It really sets that scene for when, you know, it, you, you, can, you get that sense of when that scene starts and they're at Casino Royale. If you're a Bond fan, it's a pretty big deal. That's you. You've never seen this before. You knew it was coming, and it just looks perfect. It looks imposing. It looks beautiful. It just looks incredible, as as what you'd expect from it. Um, and that was the that was the outside. The inside, the interior was actually again filmed in um, Baranov Studios in Prague, which is equally a fantastically designed set and just looks perfect for what you're expecting from that that film. It's expansive, but it's compact. When they're at the table it feels intimate and yet the It's the, intimate. It, yeah. it gets smaller when you're you're playing it. Absolutely. It's, it's it's it becomes quite stressful because all the walls feel like they're moving in. And that's that's how that set was designed. It's it's all focused on that everything happens on that one table. So you've got all this beautiful set around it, but it's all just about a table. Yeah. And if you look at any of the kind of interviews and discussions that go on about it, that's such a hard scene to do because it is just a card game. How do you make a card game? exciting scary it's half an hour long of of cards with intermittent story bits going on but most of that is due to that set because it is just such a brilliant set if you'd if you'd filmed that in i don't know some usual casinos it just wouldn't have worked it had to be had to be a bit on that way and it's um Yeah, it's a
1: phenomenal set. Also, I think uh, it it looks like a realistic casino as well. It's not a Ken Adam, like, OTT, like, atmospheric place. It looks very much like a nouveau riche, uh, Eastern European location. The detail is so perfect um, in that set, I think.
0: And that adds to it. That makes it scarier. If it was an overblown set, like, if Blofeld was at the table playing in (laughs) You Only Live Twice... It wouldn't be like that. It would be ridiculous. But it is. that's what makes it scary, isn't it? You know it's real. You know people are going to get hurt if something goes Stakes wrong. And you know there's high. real money on yeah. the table. Yeah. It's,
1: it just works. And you compare it to the 1967 version and it's day and night, isn't it?
0: Well, let's not do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, the card game is, is so important. It's integral to this whole film. It's what the film's building up to. And um, in the book, he, he's playing Baccarat against Le Chiff, But uh, in the film, they changed it to poker because... Um, according to Michael G. Wilson, it's a Baccarat right is just no longer popular. There are very few people who understand it. And obviously, poker, Texas Holden poker, is, is understood around the world. And they go to great lengths in the film to try and explain how poker is played. They play it several times. Now, um, there is a really great article online published by Polygon in two, 2020, and it's called mm-hmm. Casino Royale's Poker Scene Was As Elaborate as a James Bond Stunt. And it's this huge deep dive into the card game and how it was done so i'll be referencing that a lot but i would implore anyone who's of any interest in this to, to dig that website up and um, have a look at this article dig up a website you know what i mean so I the gist <laughs> so martin campbell told uh, told polygon there's a lot of card playing in it and it was the thing i sweated on more than anything else so the 30 minute game um it sort of acts as a microcosm for the film. Uh, It's got its own arc. It's interspersed with its own action sequences. And it just shows uh, Daniel Craig bond off um, every facet of him um, in those 30 minutes. Uh, It showed him, you know, being a daredevil. It showed him drinking martinis fighting. um, And also it's considered to be one of the best depictions of poker on film ever. Mm. Now it's, it's really well done. Martin Campbell said that the sequence is convincing um, because it's the stakes and, uh, and every glance is important between the, the people. He studied uh, card films uh, religiously before making the film. He really learned how the game works, how poker works. And he also uh, leaned a lot on Michael G. Wilson, who who calls himself a reformed poker addict. He really helped to, to, to bring some realism to the game. They, uh, The editor, Stuart Baird, he had made the film Maverick, the Western with Mel Gibson, which has a lot of gambling in it as well, a lot of card games in it. And he said that Richard Donner, who made that film, he really gave a lot of advice in terms of how you shoot a poker game. And, it, and it's basically just getting as many different shots of the game as you can. So uh, eyes, close-ups, hands, hands. Um, and Bed Stuart Baird just told Martin Campbell, do the same, just shoot the hell out of everything that you possibly can, and then that really helps him to build the tension in the edit. They hired a guy called Tom Sandbrook as a poker consultant, and he, brought, he came in, um, and yeah, he didn't know what he was coming in for, but he was briefed that they needed a poker expert for a film, and so he got the role. And yeah, he was sent out to Prague, he met Michael Wilson, and then he realised it was a Bond film. And so then uh, Sandbrook then basically trained all the actors to transform them into legitimate games. And they were just playing poker all the time on the set. They said it got quite like heated. Some of the cast were playing poker on the plane home. like They were still going for it, uh, high-stakes games. They brought in a, 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 a casino inspector, a guy called Andreas Daniel, and he is the dealer. So the guy who's dealing the cards is a casino um, professional. And then while they're shooting in this place called Carlo Vivari, which, um, as I mentioned to you before, I've been to, it was also formed inspiration for the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, there's a mm-hmm. grand hotel there. So those two films are linked in a weird way. Um, but anyway, yeah, Mads Mikkelsen, Jeffrey Wright, they're all hooked on poker. But it all comes down to this uh, final um, hand. There's basically three hands that they play in the scene, but it all comes down to the final hand. Um there is talk that the hand itself is a little bit unlikely, the one that Bond wins with. But there's a lot of uh, discussion about that online and again I would dig into yeah, it. It's
0: also quite unlikely that you'd be running across the top
1: of a crane. Yeah. <laughs> another um, but there's so much going on in the game, and it goes backwards and forwards and it takes place over a long period of time. It's really well done, I think. But yeah so Stuart Baird was watching the dailies on set and he was cutting the scenes together as it was going along so it was be- he was doing it real time basically just to make mm-hmm. sure the poker was being kept at a rhythm um, while they were making it they thought about um, taking out one of the walls and bringing in a crane to sweep round But uh, and, and they used time-lapse cameras but they got rid of all that they just really kept it simple in the end Um, There's one regret that Martin Campbell has about the scene, and it's that at the end of the game, Bond gives the dealer a $500,000 chip as a courtesy (laughs) tip. Um, He says it's a nice gesture, but the chip isn't worth anything outside of the game's context. And Campbell says, I always laugh at the end when Bond just flips him half a million. Campbell says, it was just amusing to me. It's not Bond's money. It's not his money. (laughs) He gives him this tip, and it's not even (laughs) his money. There's just no, there's nothing... Yeah, but anyway, check the article out on Polygon. Maybe we'll link to it on our on our Twitter feed as well when this article goes out, but it's really worth checking out and digging into.
0: What I think would be interesting is um, if you were to see that film, that scene done in another Bond era, with, can you imagine it with Moore or... I mean, Connery, you probably could have pulled that off quite well, but Brosnan or Moore, it would have been a footnote, wouldn't it? It would have been a three-minute scene just mm. to... And then a fight at the end of it. You just couldn't have done it with those in those films.
1: Yeah, there are some great casino scenes in Bond. But yeah, I think they just really nailed it with this one.
2: Yeah. So um, taking a look at the torture scene. So obviously Bond's won that. But he uh, he then it then leads to him being tortured by Le Chiffre. And um, this this scene, again, it's another set that was uh, built at Barandoff Studios. And it's it's tight. It's claustrophobic. And it's it's lit really well it's so atmospheric um, and they talk about this on the commentary again if, you, if you're interested go, go and have a listen to that and describe that scene and they did about five takes of this and on release in Britain it was actually partially censored to give it that 12A rating to keep it keep available to wider audiences uh, so some of Bond's reactions and um, some of the actions that Lashif carries out so Draping, There's a scene where he drapes the rope over Bond's shoulders and whispers in his ear. And that was considered too sexual, uh, I suppose. Um, so they, that was cut for the British release. Um, so this is a scene that is taken directly from the novel. Uh, it's slightly different. In the book, The Chief cuts Bond's back. So he bleeds on the floor and then rats are released in a feeding frenzy. ...underneath the chair. So they they, did, they cut that out. He also uses a carpet beater in the book... Uh, ...and in this he uses a knotted rope. Uh, so the way they shot that... ...they obviously didn't have Daniel Craig... ...you know, vulnerable... Uh, ...through the hole in the chair. They covered it with uh, fibreglass... At, ...at the at the hole. So Mads Mikkelsen would hit the, the gap... ...but and it would hit the glass. And at one point he did it so hard... ...that it cracked the glass... And uh, Daniel Craig, oh mads, chill out. Daniel Craig ran out of the room. So. <laughs> as as you would, you'd be terrified. Like, what is going on? Probably,
0: probably played a a bad hand at poker that day. <laughs>
2: so Michael G. Wilson said it is essential to the story because it sets up Bond's vulnerability. Also, Vesper is responsible for him falling into the trap. So her motivation to heal him and be with him comes from the guilt over complicity. Not having the torture scene would damage the story. So I guess if you look to past eras of Bond, this is something like that like you've said about the card game. Uh, for, you know, previous Bonds in that, you imagine other Bonds in in this scene, uh, Brosnan or more. It's unthinkable, isn't it? <laughs> mm.
0: But it is, well, they did—they did, they did try cool. it a bit with Brosnan at the start of Die Another Day.
2: Yeah, the they, they touched Brosnan on it, thing, but this, this is not a in the same different. Way. No, this is yeah. Next level. Um, so this was actually filmed on the last day of production. This is the last thing that they shot. And, and they did it in one day, according to Mads Mickelson. And uh, I'm going to take his word for it because he was in the scene. So, yeah, where else did they film? Well, they, they, they went on to... It's
0: not the most exciting place to film, but it's a beautiful place to film. Lake Como. Um, the Lakeside Sanatorium. So this is where Craig's Bond is recovering. After the events um, with with Mickelson, uh, apparently it's near the village of Leno. Never been there. I'd absolutely love to go there. That's amazing, on, doesn't it? I, I, I always remember that scene, even from when the first time I watched it. That you you just look at it, and you think, "Where the hell is this? This just looks absolutely just like heaven." I Just want to be here and just enjoying it. But the um, I mean, not a lot does happen there, but not. It's all kind of sat outside. A lot of discussions later on that he comes back to it. Um, interestingly, fact for you, Butler, is um, it was also the place where they filmed uh, the uh, scene in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Right. I didn't do a lot of research into the exact scene <laughs> of that. I seem I've got a vague <laughs> recollection of it in the back of my head. I think it had massive amounts of kind of camera.
1: Um, I'm going to say it's the bit where they're talking about sand. It's the iconic bit where he's talking about sand and it being rough and how he doesn't like it. It's got to be the romance scene with him and Padme. It will be the romance scene.
0: I definitely definitely don't. I've wiped that one from my memory, I think. But yeah, a beautiful scene and um, a a lovely setting for the film. And I think it works because it is a almost direct comparison with the scene before and, then, and I think this, this film does that a lot, where the scenes are quite... You've got that torture scene. It's dark. It's scary. It's it, you, it's not a nice scene to watch. And suddenly, your senses are changed and you're looking at this beautiful, relaxing scene where he's sat he's outside. And... It's, it's something that kind of happens quite a bit throughout this film as the scenes change because you've got some beautiful sets and you've got some quite dark scenes. Um, but this is probably by far the, the most beautiful of the scenes in, in the film and it's absolutely fantastic setting. And then, and I won't go too much into depth with this, but then they move on to Venice, obviously, which is where the big finale of the film happens. And it's an excellent location for Bond. And um, I think you'll remember Venice in Moonraker. Yeah. Not done quite so well. Yeah. <laughs> um, the gondola driving through the streets. But yeah, Venice, they use Venice as a filming location, not for all of the scenes, because obviously there's a lot of quite heavy work done in effects when they go to Venice, which is done at Pinewood.
1: Yeah, so they do, um while they're in Venice, they shoot the exteriors for the sinking house. Am I right in thinking also that From Russia With Love has a scene in Venice as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh has it yeah yeah because it ends up at venice he, doesn't he,
2: it he un, unravels the uh, the film into the into the oh ah, yes anyway right.
1: so now so yeah they shoot the sinking house exterior at a place opposite uh, on the grand canal opposite the rialto market so this is uh, they've uh, it's worth mentioning here it might be a bit confusing for people listening to this we're talking about the film in the order that they filmed it rather than that it appears in the film. So that's why it might be a bit confusing in terms of the chronology. But yeah, worth mentioning at this point. But yeah, so they shot the sinking house. Uh, They basically shoot the plates there. So they had a a house that they decided was going to be the one that they sank. They put compression pipes under the water and they shot air up to make it all bubble. And they captured the life-size, what they call plates. So then that's what they would put the cgi and the model effects onto at a later point and we'll talk to talk about that when we move on to the scenes that are shot in uh venice Uh, not in venice (laughs) we'll talk about that when we talk about the scenes shot on pinewood pinewood
2: um so there is a deleted scene which was shot at eton uh which is available on the blu-ray as as an extra and it's Right at the beginning, the black and white scene that takes place in the toilet where he's fighting, that is actually at a cricket match set in Pakistan, but it was shot at Eton College. Uh, it was cut because it didn't really add anything and slowed down that very, as we talked about, it's you know, striking beginning to bond. It's very quick, very immediate. and uh, this... Don't want to mess up that pacing. No. And that's what this did. So they, they cut it. Um, but it is available to watch on, I think it's online as well. So if you want to have a look at it, it's It's not much goes on. It's just Bond hanging out at a cricket match and then uh, chasing this guy into the toilet. So in
0: Casino Real we see the DBS V12 used. And if you you're interested in the cars of Bond go back to the uh, earlier episode where we talk about the Aston Martin um, relationship in more depth so I'm not going to go talk about it too much here but the film is it's a fairly I mean it's a really nice looking car but it's a fairly dumbed down Bond car based on what we've we've been used to over uh, for previous films so there's not a lot of gadgets in it it's not massively used in the film in the same way that the the Bond cars are, are used in other films it's it's got a spare gun in it and it's got a defibrillator both of which are quite useful, um, but it's definitely not what we've come to expect from Q's cars um, in the past. It was later destroyed um, during Bond's pursuit with Le Chiffre, um, which happens just before the the torture scene. Uh, Aston Martin delivered two working cars for the film, called Hero Cars, um, but they had to prepare three uh, DB9s for uh, for uses as DBS lookalikes to to be used as stunt cars, because... Because they only had two working hero cars, they needed some extra ones. So they were, they were DBSs. Uh, sorry, DB9s. They also, uh, they also a white prototype DB9 manual was supplied to the film crew, so the stunt drivers had something to practice with. I don't know why they didn't have one before that. I suppose the most interesting thing about the Aston Martin in this film is the quite impressive stunt which happens, where the the car does a number of turns in the in the chase sequence and. Apparently due to the low centre of gravity of the vehicle, an 18 inch ramp had to be implemented on the road tarmac and Adam Curley, who was a stunt driver who performed it, had to use an air cannon located behind the driver's seat to propel the car into a roll at the precise moment it impacted the ground, which is ridiculous if you think about it. So at speed exceeding 70 miles per hour, the car rotated seven times while being filmed and, was confirmed, by the Guinness Book of Records uh, as as being a new as a new world record on fifth of November two thousand and six, pretty impressive. I think a lot of people know that fact who aren't even Bond fans just because it was quite a big deal at the time. It's definitely one of the standout stunts of the film, isn't it? It's yeah. It's a. It, I mean, it, it is a standout stunt, but it's also it's quite a subtle stunt. It's not it's not showing off about it. It's very neatly tied into the storyline, and I I seem to remember when we watched it, I I completely forgot it was happening. I was in, so engaged in the story of what was going on that 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 stunt just kind of washed over me but if that was in a you know a, an earlier Bond film that would be a much more you know they'd show that off it wouldn't be a dark a dimly lit kind of scene that very quickly moves on to something else it would be a big deal so yeah it's it's a pretty big deal for that film and it's um yeah it looks great if you if you watch that again without worrying about the storyline it's well worth um just seeing for how impressive it is yeah
1: that crashing of the car is lifted from the book as well There's definitely a scene in the in the book where he his car gets totaled and that's how he ends up getting captured by the chief um yeah. so from that the most impressive stunt i think probably move on to probably my least favorite action sequence in the film which is the miami airport scene um, which for me, I think is great and it's really well, handsomely staged, but I just feel like the film could lose it and it would be fine. Um,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> Feels a bit di- die hard to me. Yeah.
1: A bit over the top. Well, actually, they talk about being inspired by um, the film, oh, the Michael Mann film at the airport. What's that? Heat, you know, the film, um, yeah. yeah, sort of inspired by that. So this was, you know, um, we talked about it. Some of it was shot in Prague the inside of the airport but the outside of miami airport on the runway is actually at dunsfold aerodrome in in surrey that's where they film um top gear other films that have shot there include mission impossible 7 bohemian rhapsody uh, the theory of everything and it's actually the home to the only w uh, boeing 747 that's available to use for filming so that's why a lot of places like to, to go there the f- the plane is a fictional skyfleet prototype and peter lamont designed it and but the the, the film the, the plane itself like i said is a 747 it's just been modified for the film so it's got extra uh, engines um and the proto the, the the cockpit has been updated as well and actually if you look at it they said that the design of the cockpit is a homage to 2001 a space odyssey um so it's quite an action packed sequence there is a great bit in the in the scene where a cop car gets too close to behind the aeroplane and it gets flipped over by the engines. So they actually attached a, um, a a car to a crane with a cable and they basically yanked it to flip it backwards um, to move it away from the plane. It's a really nice scene and also this is a fun fact. They actually used um, a model car for some uh, a version of it. Bought from Hamleys that they filled up with salt so that when it span the the salt span out and it looked like glass smashing everywhere. Um, but yeah, to me, I think that Miami Airport scene it's great. I just feel like it, it's it, it it you know you could the film could do without it and it would still be a great film. In yeah, my opinion. I
2: actually found the um, the making of that scene more interesting than the actual scene. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, the the documentary and and worth noting as well on one of the takes. Where they yank the car away. It it flies into the camera. They were so worried about not um, having it land on the runway. They over yanked it. And it smashed one of the camera's to pieces. So So then Bond heads home to Pinewood. to, uh, To shoot some final bits and pieces. So we've got Peter Lamont said. At Pinewood Studios. The film used several stages. The paddock tank and the 007 stage. We have the amazing sinking house on the 007 set at Pinewood Studios. We built two separate houses: one that could sink up to one level, and another that could go down further. So, this is something that I guess in the previous film they would have just CGI'd uh, in Die Another Day, but this time they've they've built everything. and And if you if you just put into Google uh, the, this Venice scene, so many people Google asking, did they actually you know destroy a building in Venice? It's so convincing, and even I remember at the time thinking, when I first watched it, thinking, "Wow, that's I can't believe they've done this because it looks it looks incredible." It's it's this is that this is how CGI should be used. It's like just to enhance and make it believable. Where you're not going, this is CGI. You're thinking this is incredibly realistic. Um, yeah. But obviously, with the help of those models that they created at Pinewood Studios, so the sinking house was built uh, at the paddock tank. At Pinewood, and it could be submersed in 19 feet of water it weighed 90 tons so it's absolutely incredible the way they control it it's all hydraulics and um, it's like remote control and then they also built a one-third scale model of the building for the exteriors which they then put onto the plate
1: yeah i don't want to correct i want to correct you there brendan i think the the miniature is on in the paddock tank because that's the outdoor outdoor tank and then i think the 90 ton right. rig is in the bo- is in the bond the other stage way around. in the double 7 stage six. yeah
2: yeah yeah that's fine it's better that you correct me than some somebody angrily emailing us put that beer down <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah again this is this is on the extras of the dvd and it's absolutely fantastic and and they they're controlling it with like uh, the the little joysticks and it just it looks like a lot of fun to to be to be controlling that and doing that and again they're using the um the water they said the good thing about doing it at a scale is that water can be can be shot down to scale and still look full scale so they've got that the ability to do that but yeah i mean it's it's fantastic
1: yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. On the DVD extras as well, Martin Campbell said that he couldn't storyboard the sequence because he didn't know what it was going to look like when he got in there because of the way it was done. So basically he got to this big, the biggest rig they've ever built for James Bond and he's just hoofing it, just like absolutely yeah. winging it as he's going along, making up the shots yeah. as he goes. It's, it's absolutely amazing, really. Yeah. To, yeah. yeah. to go into this sequence and not really have a, a, a clear plan of how you're going to do it.
0: Mm. Well, it is. It's such a. Uh, have you guys ever been to Venice? Yeah, yeah. Because it's so. Uh, you've obviously got the outdoor scenes of Venice look amazing, but the the way they've done that end that that whole sequence, you can imagine that happening in Venice. It looks mm. so perfect. You, you, the way that the buildings and stuff are set up, it just looks great. It's not like a stupid set piece. It looks like you, that's why people are googling, going, "Was that real?" Because it's completely conceivable
2: that 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 could happen. Yeah. But yeah, it's a wonderful scene. Absolutely, and the the scene where Vesper drowns, she, uh, Eva Green actually did train to breathe underwater, uh, to like control wow. control her breath so that she wasn't breathing in water. So she yeah, it's it. so
1: realistic.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a, a, a like a doll, A um, dummy. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not. And there was people on set at the time didn't know that she was going to do that. And w were shocked when because it is so realistic, when she falls back, you think, oh no. Uh. You'd think you'd tell people uncertain <laughs> you're gonna do that if you were to her. Also round the corner from Pinewood Studios is a place called Black Park. Uh so if you remember the early scene set in Uganda. Yeah. Um where it's uh Le is is meeting his contact and it's absolutely pouring down with rain. Well they wanted to shoot that in Prague but they struggled actually getting black extras to because it was in Uganda set in Uganda so they decided to do it back in England so they showed Martin Campbell where they were planning to shoot this place and it's um, a park across the way from Pinewood and he wasn't convinced because it was just like a normal English country park but they, he was reassured that they would set dress it and it would look just like Uganda and You've got to say they've done an absolute great job. You know they they brought in special red soil to give it that 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 look. Which wow! Was, uh, they got permission from the local council to make sure it didn't affect the ecosystem. But I mean, it yeah, you would never know. It's absolutely lovely, brilliant. It lovely little scene that. It's quite simple as well, but it just you don't even question it. Also, the first time we see rain in a Bond film. I hope you're oh, as shocked. Well, that's a hope, fact. I know. I hope you're as shocked as I am about rain. That. I
0: know. What? Yeah, I know. That's gonna. I'm gonna have to watch a all now just to find this. If this is true,
2: it's. I, I that can't
0: be true. That's
1: unbelievable.
2: It's
0: unbelievable, isn't it? Although I imagine that rain makes it a lot harder to film. So.
2: Yeah, probably, and and the yeah. whole point of Bond is going to exotic locations, you know. So why would it be? Yeah, rainy. Yeah, there's
0: nowhere rainy he goes. He goes to snowy places, but not rainy yeah. places. So, wow, nice yeah, little fun fact for that's you.
1: Blown my mind. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I don't believe him. I'm going to go and check this. <laughs> I've got I've got three days of back to back film watching yeah. now just to see if there's any rain. There's probably some in uh, Never Say Never Again.
2: Well, if that that I mean, okay, Canon, Canon Bond. <laughs> yeah. Well, Pinewood, unfortunately,
0: tragedy hits again. We talk about fires at at, um, James Bond filming locations in in previous podcasts, but once again, another fire at Pinewood. Um, And this time, it's a pretty big fire. It's uh, Apparently, at least eight fire engines came to sort the blaze out. Um, But luckily, it was at the end of filming for Casino Royale. So unlike um, during View to a Kill, it didn't have a massive impact on on the actual film that the overall production of the film um and uh if you look at any pictures of of the set, um and there's quite a lot of news articles on it you, you can see the whole roof has like caved in of, of the um of, of the double seven stage and yeah it was a it was a pretty big deal at the time the the uh, brian dugdale who was the firefighter in charge of the blaze, said Luckily, the stage was just being dis- disassembled uh, after a shoot, and there weren't any of the hazards that you would normally associate with filming. So th- there weren't any pyrotechnics or anything like that. So it could have been much worse. They, it was because it was the end of filming; a lot of the stuff had, had been removed, and it was it was rebuilt and back up and running again by April 2007. So it didn't have a massive impact on on the Bond filming. Just to, just for reference, there you've got the uh, the Spy Who Loved Me set was. Quite badly damaged back in 1984, and there was another set, ex, um, set issue with uh, some explosions, which happened in 2019. Wait, I think you've got during your, the No Time to Die film. You got your dates yeah. wrong
1: there, I think. Well, which one. It's A View to a Kill, Views, 1984.
0: Yeah. yeah, so yeah, it was the Spy Who Loved Me set, because it was built for that, wasn't it? Stage,
2: right? The, uh, uh, well, the Seven yeah, Stage. D-
0: it was yeah. The stage was originally built for the Spy Who Loved Me. Right, that's right, isn't it? <laughs> yes. That 's what I meant, but yeah it was during future uh, uh, kill and uh, the film with that June 1984 and there yeah there was another issue with explosions in 2019 during the filming of no time to die although that was significantly less it wasn't it didn't it blew the walls
1: impact. off didn't it it was a mistimed explosion or something mm. yes so that's it that 's a wrap on the film until it 's released
0: <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> yeah don't go anywhere So now the film has wrapped, they can start putting the finishing touches to it. And the first thing that they uh, we're going to look at is the titles. Uh, Obviously the most iconic and one of the most iconic parts of a James Bond film. Daniel Kleinman is the man responsible for the opening title sequence. And they're really, really distinctive. They're some of my favourite title sequence. Mm -hmm. If you remember, it's it's, uh, CGI. It's graphically designed. It's all inspired by cards, playing cards. And Martin Campbell... There's a lot of thought in it, isn't there? Oh, yeah, it's been really well thought through. Martin Campbell apparently suggested the card motif to Daniel Kleinman, and he says he took that and ran with it as far as possible. And Daniel Kleinman actually then went and looked at um, the first edition of Casino Royale, which is grey, and it's got the hearts from the cards on it. Drip, hearts are dripping blood. Um, and he says, uh, yeah, he, so he took inspiration from that. And then he also imagined this uh, a puff of gun smoke turning into a club symbol from a card, and that really set him off running. Um, so he then uh, took that design um, and and sort of simplified it, gave it a bit more of a high tech glam feel. And it's like I said, it's more graphic design than other other um, other Bond titles. And one thing that's completely absent from these titles, which normally happens, is the naked woman silhouettes. There's none of that. Martin Campbell said he did not want the naked female bodies in it because it just wasn't appropriate for the story. And it's the, it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So Kleinman worked with uh, William Bartlett. He's the head. Of, uh, he works at Framestore, a visual effects company in London. And he is the head of the, uh, a tool called Inferno, which I imagine at the time was probably very cutting edge. And what they did is they uh, used this technology to film uh, the actors doing stunts and then they would turn that like in a rotoscoping sort of style into animated sequences. And there's some great stuff where, you know, bodies fall and explode into card symbols. So, Bartlett said we wanted to include fight sequences as part of the visuals, but we didn't want to wander into censorship territory with the violence. And so, using the animation over real footage, they could do something that looked fantastic and acted as a protective layer against the violence. Um, And they could also then introduce, you know, crude shapes. And I just think it's a fantastic opening sequence. There's some amazing use of the designs. One Mm -hmm. thing that they did cut was a body falling to the floor and a club symbol being the bullet hole in the side of the head bleeding. They had to take that out and they swapped it for a club being stabbed into the chest instead. Apparently being stabbed is fine. Bullet (laughs) holes. No (laughs) go. But I guess the thing that really makes the title sequence is the song.
2: Ah, Absolutely. So, uh, if you think at the time, it's completely left field. So Chris Cornell was invited to 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 write a song for Bond to reflect this new gritty direction that they're they're taking Bond in, and they wanted a strong male voice. Chris Cornell thought it was a strange offer and assumed that you know he was Amer- because he was American, he'd just be doing like a a, a backup song or a, a second song. He declared that he did, he liked the Bond movies. Uh, preferred Sean Connery, wasn't really a big fan of the recent stuff, but it was the intrigue in Daniel Craig's casting and the new direction they're going that got him on board. So, yeah, again, this direction they're going in, it's getting a lot of people on board that are taking it, they are helping to. It's sort of like a self-fulfilling perpetual mm. motion that's that's going. People are jumping on board, and because that person's involved, you know, and it's snowballing. So he went to Prague uh, to visit the shooting location and he was impressed with the way they were setting it up and the emotional content of the script. They showed him a rough cut. He met David Arnold and they they started to work together. They started separately initially, so they were doing it separately. He was Chris Cornell was in Paris, David Arnold in London. And Chris Cornell said, "It's difficult, I think, to write lyrics for a character." So really I just wandered around for about a month, not thinking about it too much, until I formulated some idea of a way that I could approach it, where I'm kind of relating to what's in the character in the movie. And because this particular bond is very edgy, but also has a lot of emotional depth, it's a lot easier. So then, after working on it separately, they come together, and um, Arnold said that it was like they wrote two parts of the same song. And so it just came together really nicely. Arnold's ideas included the the song's title uh, and the the heavy introduction to the song, which is just hard hitting straight away, isn't it? It's that that now when he when he turns round, he shoots, blood drips down the screen, yeah. and then you bang, you're in, and it it's, really it's like the film, that. isn't it? Straight yeah. in, just yeah. you know what you're getting straight away. Absolutely. So then they, they got the demo of the song together. It was approved by the producers and they recorded uh, the song. Uh, it was actually ready in time for the rap party. So David Arnold played it. Oh, very nice. And then he mixed in the orchestral parts. Arnold said, "He, he uh, y- you know my name. Want, I want you know my name to be a substitute for the James Bond theme to represent Bond's immaturity. Uh, the song's motif is is heard throughout the film, and the classic theme plays only during the end cre- credits to signal the end of the character arc. I think personally, this the you know my name. It could have been composed by Barry. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 so powerful and so Bond. It, it's it's iconic and i'm surprised i've not used it since to be honest it's every um, bit the
1: peer of the, uh, the the what is it the 007 theme from from russia with love you know the yeah do you know which one i mean the, the, yes
2: i do it, in, in the, the really the powerful the gypsy camp yeah yes. yes yeah
1: it's every bit as good um, as that
2: so cornell stated two big influences um were tom jones who performed the theme for thunderball and paul mccartney Uh, for Live and Let Let Die. He said, I decided I was going to sing it like Tom Jones in that crooning style. I wanted people to hear my voice. And Live and Let Let Die is a fantastic song. Paul McCartney wouldn't have written it if not for that movie. I wanted to write a song in its own universe. I knew I'd never have a big orchestra again, so I wanted to have fun with it. So he didn't put, interestingly as well, he didn't put the title of the film in the lyrics, which... Is usually synonymous with Bond, but he said he couldn't imagine it fitting into a song lyric lyric that would come out of my mouth.
0: Well, it does sound stupid, doesn't it, trying to put Casino Royale into it? Yeah,
2: it's just all the the wrong sounds, isn't it? He said, Casino Royale didn't make a good rock title, but I would write a song named Octopussy just for fun. So obviously he worked with David Arnold, who did the rest of the score.
0: Yeah. And as we know, David Arnold started working with the, the Bond series back in uh well, with Tomorrow Never Dies. And that soundtrack is it's kind of synonymous with this sort of fresh new outlook on a on a Bond, which he did really well with Tomorrow Never Dies. And and after Eric Serra did Goldeneye, it was it was quite a breath of fresh air in the way that it, it, it mixed orchestral sounds with quite modern electronic style music. And you know the world is not enough. Die another day. There was not. It was pretty similar to what you got from Terra Dies. There's some nice elements to those, but much like Campbell coming back and and having this fresh new character to start with, it was a similar thing with with David Arnold. It was a it was a new lease of freedom to really pick up the character from a from a fresh new angle, and the music in it. You can you can hear that. You know it's David Arnold from the stylings, but it's there's a lot more to it. It's a lot more. There's a lot more emotion in it. There's a lot more depth to the to the songs. Although the, you've got the, the the same hallmarks, it's a mix of, of classical music and, and electronic. It sounds a lot more orchestral and a lot more classical in the way that it's pulled together. If you sit and listen to that soundtrack, you can hear the electronic sounds, but they're not really clear. It's not obvious. I've read a few... Uh, kind of overviews of, of the, the score and they do mention that there's a touch of techno to it, like there are dancey elements to it, electronic elements but they're significantly more minimal than Tomorrow Never Dies, if you think about that soundtrack, that's a dance soundtrack at its roots, it's the core of it, it's electronic dance music, whereas this, it's a classic soundtrack, it's a classic score that, you know, it's, it's a John Barry score, but tinged with these new electronic style sounds that that have come along so yeah it's just it's a it's a brilliant one and you, you talked a bit there about how he doesn't use the bond bond song in it up until the end I believe there are little touches of of the bond theme that come along but unless you're you have a very keen ear they're very difficult to get I think when we watched it we spotted a couple just loosely but he's not throwing in whole sections of songs he's not throwing in ten notes it's it's like a very very loose twinkling and if you if uh, you it's only really discernible if you really know those songs well and you're really listening hard and um and yeah so that that the cornell song is the main theme throughout until until the end when 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 he becomes the the bond that we know and 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 we suddenly get the, the the original theme tune but yeah i think it's an absolutely fantastic soundtrack and it's by far i'd probably say it's my favorite of David Arnold I, I just mm. think he's really come into his own with it he owns that completely whereas with Tomorrow Never Dies yes it's fantastic it's a good soundtrack but he doesn't own it it's, it almost feels like a compilation album that we've worked on with other people whereas this is just a fantastic soundtrack and it really just it's just a classic a, a classical uh, score yeah. which is just fantastic to listen to
2: what an incredible way as well to play a theme that we've all heard hundreds of times yeah to make it seem exciting because right at yeah. the end that last track which is called the Name's Bond James Bond it it's incredible the power yes. the power that it has and yet it's yeah. something that we've 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 heard like Roger Moore just driving along in a car to that and just think, yeah. thought nothing yeah. of it we've we've seen Sean Connery look around a hotel room to it yeah. and yet this this yeah. is just absolutely amazing yeah um and yeah cr- credit goes to David Arnold for this it's yeah stunning yes completely
1: now we're uh, ready to talk about the film being released and obviously one of the main things about the film um, one of the first uh, glimpses people got of the film was the film's poster there's a few famous posters for, for Casino Royale very different now from the, the, the Pierce Brosnan area they're going a very different direction the first teaser poster is the one of Daniel Craig at the casino table. He's sort of leaning over, he's in the shadows, he's got the gun. It's sort of the first real time that the public got to see what Daniel Craig looked like. It's designed by a company called Vox and Associates and the art, uh, the photography is by Greg Williams. Greg Williams is the unit photographer who's done a lot of James Bond books actually. They're all really good. I think he's done five, four, f- five books. I've probably got a new one coming out with No Time to Die. So that was the teaser and then the main one is the big grey one which is Daniel Craig in silhouette with his bow tie untied and then you've got the silhouette behind him, the casino, the car and it's very much an emphasis on Daniel Craig being rugged, being handsome, there's a lot of silent space around him, Uh, it's a very film noir poster. Um, and obviously that's something that the film really wants to lean into and obviously then you've got the Aston Martin behind him so it's just bringing all the old school and the new school together there's um, a slight blurring of the logo uh, the Casino Royale logo which sort of indicates movement and speed and actually that's the look of the the posters going forward for the rest of his era it's very sparse, it's very focused on Daniel Craig Uh, to be honest I would love to see a return to the a golden era of hand-drawn Bond posters, but that is maybe,
0: maybe they'll come back in the neck in the new yeah when we get a new Bond
1: maybe but yeah that,
2: I'd I'd be the same with that.
1: So now it's time for the film to come out.
2: Yeah, so uh, the film premiered at uh, Leicester Square on the fourteenth of November two thousand and six, and Queen Elizabeth the second was in attendance. Glad
0: you said the second, then that would have got
2: confusing. <laughs> All right, the Queen, the Queen was in attendance. Um, along with all the cast and crew loads of celebrities as you can imagine you know and and f- 5,000 people that were, were going to see it as well paying uh, guests with only two days following that premiere though there were already bootleg copies doing the rounds and Daniel Craig was actually offered one <laughs> in the streets when he was uh, walking through Beijing he was disguised he was wearing a hat and glasses but uh, yeah he was he was offered one uh, of his own bootleg movies and they were actually selling for just over 1 pound 50 so wow you know just shows you the struggle that it's a big big task to fight that sort of theft it also became the first bond film to ever be shown in china which is also incredible um mm-hmm. uh, the subject matter was also uh, always deemed you know not worthy prior to this uh, they did slightly edit it uh any references to cold war or um and the poker scene was actually uh changed out but yeah it's uh first, how do you make the film without Jan. poker no they, they they added further dialogue so it wasn't just i don't know where they would have put the Dialogue, but it explained what poker is and how to play it. But where, where, where would they put that? That I'd love to
0: see that. Just yeah. the back of people's heads for, <laughs> for ages, <for> simply talking. <laughs>
2: so yeah, it's it's had its premiere. It's been released. What what do people think?
0: Well, as you can probably imagine, they really liked it. It's it's done pretty well in like the from a critical critical standpoint but also from a just a general public standpoint rotten tomatoes gave it an approval rating of 94 percent um this i don't know I'm sure how long ago this was um with an average uh rating of 7.87 out of 10 so pretty good there are it's the second highest rated rating for a bond film on the site alongside rush, from rush with love and dr no um behind Goldfinger, which is got a score of 99%. Metacritic gave it an average score of 80 out of 100. Prominent publications, Daily Telegraph compared the quality of Craig's characterization of Bond to Sean Connery's and praised the script as smartly written, noting how the film departed from the series' conventions. The Times compared Craig's portrayal of the character to that of Timothy Dalton and praised the action as edgy. BBC, Empire and Variety all described Craig as the first actor to truly embody Ian Fleming's James Bond from the original novel. Ironic, brutal and cold and it's also really well received uh, in North America as well where MSNBC gave the movie a perfect 5 star rating the, uh, just a couple more here, um, Entertainment Weekly named the film as the best uh, as the 5th best of the series and chose Vesper Lind as the 4th best Gone Girl in the series and then uh, I always like to bring up uh, Roger Ebert, uh, he gave the film a 4 out of uh, 4 star rating and wrote that Craig makes a superb bond who gives the sense of a hard man wounded by life and his job who, nevertheless, cares about people and right and wrong, and that the film has the answers to all of my complaints about the forty-five-year-old James Bond series, specifically why nobody in Bond a uh, Bond movie ever seems to have any real emotions. There's loads more. Roger Moore loved it. There were some bad, like some negative re- responses, but it just seems like there's far, far outweighed by the positive. And it's, mm. I mean, you. It's pretty obvious, really, from what you know. I don't think I know anyone that doesn't like Casino Royale, and most people really, really like it.
1: Yeah, and, and audiences came out for it, earned $606 million at the worldwide box office. It was the fourth highest-grossing film of the year, and it was the highest-grossing James Bond film ever until Skyfall came out in 2012. In release in the UK, it broke the series record uh, for Casino Royale, £1.7 at uh, £1.7 million, pounds. With a opening weekend of thirteen million, and at the end of the its UK box office run, it had taken fifty five point four million pounds, making it the most successful film of the year in the UK, and it's still Mm. the nineteenth most successful film at the UK box office ever. Wow! Um, Spectre and Skyfall have surpassed it since then. Casino, uh, Quantum of Solace did not. So in the U.S., interestingly, in its opening weekend, it took forty million dollars. But actually, it came in at second place in the weekend. Any a prize for guessing the film that beat it number one that weekend? I'll buy you a Harry Potter. Uh, no, I'll buy you an original James Bond poster if <laughs> you
2: can. I'll put I you out you,
1: I'll put you out in misery. It's Happy Feet. It was beaten at the box office by Happy well, Feet. Well, that's that's justified. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it had a better per screen average than Happy Feet, but Happy Feet was just playing at more cinemas. So at the end of its run, it earned $167 million in the US.
0: Great. Well, we'll get into more depth in that when we start the Happy Feet podcast uh, coming up (laughs) next year.
1: (laughs) But it was the worldwide number one for four weeks and obviously then later came out on Blu-ray as well. And, uh, you know, actually was one of the best-selling Blu-rays of all time, I think. Um, and it's a great Blu-ray release, I think. We'll all agree.
2: Yeah, yeah it came uh, free with some PlayStations. Yes. PlayStation, would it have been at that time? Three? Yeah, three. PlayStation three? Yeah, that was the first yeah. Blu-ray. So that was their big push. Um, yeah. And even Roger Moore went out and bought it on DVD, didn't he? <laughs> so impressed. <laughs> so there you go. Of course he did. So with all this comes accolades and awards. So it won a BAFTA. Um, at the 2006 Awards for Best Sound. It was nominated for eight. So Best British Film, Best Screenplay, Best Film Music, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Production Design, Best Achievement in Special Visual Effects, and Best Actor. That meant Craig was the first actor to ever receive a BAFTA nomination for a performance as James Bond. And Eva Green won the Orange Rising Star Award as well. So, yeah, I mean, audiences love it. Film critics love it. Awards panels love it.
0: It was just what the doctor ordered, wasn't it? It was, yeah. it, it yeah. did ex- everything. Well, I wouldn't say we talk about the perfect Bond film and I will always say that's Goldfinger, but Casino Royale is getting pretty close for ticking all the boxes.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, what, what, where does it rank for you guys? I guess uh, one thing we can do now that we've done three of these film specials is we can start ranking them, right, in, in the order that we've done them. So we've done A View to a Kill, Casino Royale 67 and Casino Royale 0- 06. I mean, I yeah. guess we all agree... Would we all agree in the order of these?
2: Yeah, 67's top. <laughs> can we get rid of the other two? <laughs>
1: For me, it's got to be this one as number one, Casino Royale. Absolutely. A View to a Kill, yeah. Casino Royale yeah. 67.
2: Yeah. I mean, but- this, this one, this Casino Royale is... So far ahead of the other two. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I've got this in my... T- I always
0: forget what my top five is, but I think this is at the top five. Definitely. It's in my top
2: five, yeah.
1: Definitely. Yeah. It's fantastic. There's very little to... Very little to... Um, to criticise it for. Like I said, I don't think the airport scene is great. I, th- I think it's over long. It's the second longest James Bond film. I think there's a lot going on in this film. Mm. But it has it a... It does fo- drag a lot. Yeah.
0: It, it, it does. You get towards the end of it, and I always... There's scenes at the end where I think, oh, I completely forgot this existed. I thought we were going to be out of here in 10 minutes, but no, there's, here but we go. The, the Venice thing's massive.
1: There's a real forward momentum to the film and it it really moves along at a great pace. I think the villain's great. I think Eva Green's great. I think Daniel Craig's great. The music's fantastic. Yeah. it's just got yeah. everything going for it.
2: Matt Mikkelsen performance, um, getting yeah. Judy Dench back, so important. Um it, Yes. it's
0: definitely one of those and I don't know if you guys have this but um, my my girlfriend if I suggest that we're going to watch a Bond film she normally says oh, which one and if I say Skyfall or Casino Royale, she goes oh, okay fine anything else doesn't want to watch it so I think you've got this kind of I think it surpasses Bond as a film I think people yeah. see it as just a great film mm-hmm. Um who have no interest in Bond? It's just a. It, if you looked at that that's, that year or that decade of films, it just goes down as a great film in that series, uh, in, in in what was released. Um, and obviously for Bond fans, it is a great Bond film as well. So it just it just
2: covers everything. Yeah, definitely. It's probably the first as well that is sort of has wide appeal and that is great. Because yeah, even well, though think, even though we off. love we love Goldfinger. The, yeah, the appeal isn't as wide as. as I think
0: one. it was at the time. I think I think when those films came out, the appeal was quite wide, and then, the, over time they kind of disappear quite a bit. I don't know if Casino Royale in 20 years' time people will see it as a boring old film, spy film, but it's definitely it's really held on for quite a long time as a great film that mm. that it's it's not time sensitive, is it? It's not like a lot of Bond films, early ones where it's very fleeting with the trends it's not a trend based film it's just a great story it's based on the original book from yeah you know six, 60 years 50, before whatever. yeah
1: 52 um, I think the one thing that dates it is the use of the mobile phones in the film the phones in this film are really really dated
0: oh well that's something that <laughs> yeah. that's something the broccolis need to sort out just take a hit stop putting something <laughs> in the, the highest bidding phone company and and just I, I mean if No Time Till Die comes out and he's not using an iPhone it's it's just going to look very odd. Oh, he's not, is he? He's using. No. Is it Nokia? Yeah. Oh, the phone. Yeah, that's that's.
1: I, if I was to put down a problem with the whole Bond series, it's the phones. Every time. There needs to be a deepfake for phones where they can just put it put it through the deepfake machine and and it updates the phone for the era that you're watching it in. Or just
0: just give him like a style where he holds his hand over his phone when he talks, so. And that's what Bond does. And you just see him always doing that thing again with his hand over the phone. So it doesn't really matter. But yeah, it's 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 a constant, constant problem
1: that it is. It, I always find it is quite jarring when it's an old Bond film. I, I guess the one thing with Casino Royale is it, it was such a groundbreaking film, but it also set the template for the rest of Daniel Craig's era for better or for worse. Yes. And, you know, people... Some people may criticise it for being too gloomy and too emotional and too, you know, uh, and you know, I, I can see the argument for and against it. But I think on its own merits, I think it's a fantastic Bond film. It's one of the well, best.
0: I think you've hit the you've hit the nail on the head there. And I think if you if you treat Casino Royale on its own as a standalone film, it is fantastic and it it just does so much. If you're treating it as part of the Daniel Craig era uh, and that whole arc that arc does have many problems and, and Casino Royale probably has a part to play. It's the root causing of it. That.
1: It's the root of it, isn't it? It's yeah. the whole uh, mooning over Vespa Lind, which sort of just yeah. continues for four more films or at least three more films.
0: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it, and it does cause a problem and yeah, it, it also, it's the same with the stylistic stuff as well. It's such a groundbreaking new film and in, in the way that they've done it, you look at uh, David Arnold who who did the music for it. he, what he's done with that is fantastic the music he couldn't do that again because it's it's that one time thing you've got a new character you've got a new way to do it but a lot of the excitement is in that first film you lose that later on in the films and it becomes difficult to retain that sort of that sort of style and I think I don't think there's another Craig film that matches it I, lo- I like Skyfall but it's not it just doesn't have that sort of quality and, and kind of all round
2: just brilliance that Casino Royale has. I think it really benefits from Campbell's direction as well. I think yeah. that's
1: from uh, the director of Green Lantern. <laughs> that's Brenda's favourite film. <laughs> on that that and Justice that, League. On that note, I think we should wrap things up because we have been going for quite a while now. Yes. But thank yep. you so much for listening. If you have listened to this, as always, please leave us a review where you are listening. It all helps to spread the word for the, of the James Bond z podcast. Where can people find us?
2: At James Bond A to Z at on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook,
1: or on email at podcast at Z.co.uk. James Bond will return with a regular episode, uh, returning still to the letter C uh, next week. And uh, thanks for listening. James Bond will be back next week.
0: Thanks a lot. Ciao. james bond a to z podcast features tom butler brendan duffy and tom wheatley the podcast was produced by tom wheatley with music by tom ingambells and artwork supplied by helen dolly